Today on the show, we have Paul Carroll. His company is called Avion Wealth. It's an elite wealth management firm with clients both in Texas and throughout the U.S. He's now at the firm for 18 years, so there's got to be a big story behind this one, Paul. Where would you like me to start? I guess at the beginning. Of course, of course. Well, Chad, thank you so much for having me on board your podcast. I'm honored and flattered that you would reach out to me and invite me. I was born in Dublin, Ireland. And when we were rather young, we moved to London and then Manchester, England. And I came to the United States on a vacation when I was 15 years old. My grandfather actually lived in Dallas, Texas. It's a long story how that all worked out. But long story short, when I came at 15, that was 1977, the infrastructure was new, the highways were new, the buildings were clean. I literally thought the streets were paved with gold here. So I went back and of course, 77 to 79 in England, we had the troubles with Northern Ireland. We had unemployment and inflation was at 25%. I think wow. it's high now. So I couldn't get out fast enough. In 1979, fall of 1979, I came to the United States. I was 17 years old. I showed up with $200 in a toothbrush. I had no idea what I was doing. And before long, I ran out of airspeed altitude ideas, fell flat in my face. So I did what you do when that happens. I enlisted in the Air Force, went in as an aircraft electrician, and that was how I was going to get through college. I had four years and four months, and in that period, I got my associate in aircraft electrical systems and a bachelor's in business and management from the University of Maryland. And literally, I actually had the extra four months so I could finish school and then get out. So when I got out, I still really didn't know what I was doing. I was still a stranger in a strange land, so to speak. I had my head down, working hard. I did what you do when you don't know what to do next. I decided I'd go to grad school. Well, I graduated summa cum laude with a 4.0 average, which didn't mean I was the smartest kid in the room. It meant I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in the Air Force. And no, nothing against the Air Force, but I'm an entrepreneurial type. The two do not fit. So Texas A&M made an offer I couldn't refuse, so I did. I got my master's in finance from Texas A&M. It was a great experience. It was one of the smartest decisions I ever made. I really found a passion for finance, investment finance, finance in general. I got out and got a job at a company called Smith Barney. They used to have these old ads, Smith Barney, we make money the old-fashioned way. We steal it. And, or they would say, we earn it. I couldn't stand that job. It was dialing for dollars and it was selling junk. And I learned rapidly the worst thing you could have at a broker dealer back in those days was the knowledge of finance because they had something called the squawk box. And the squawk box was what they used to teach you what to think. It didn't work. I, I, after a year, I was very frustrated. A good friend of mine told me, hey, Paul, there's a shortage of pilots. Can't be that hard. Let's go do that. Well, there was until I decided to follow that career path. It took me a number of years. I'd work nine months, go to school, work nine months, go to school to pay for flight training. But seven jobs later, I ended up, I was at Continental Airlines flying out of first Newark and then Houston, Texas. Well, I was originally flying out of New York, Newark when, of course, September 11 happened. And that was a dark day for Continental Airlines, just as it was for the country. Shortly after that, I was sent to Houston involuntarily, but that was okay. And then after moving down here on my own dime, 
they then decided, no, we just can't afford this anymore. And I was furloughed, which was pretty bitter pill because by now I'm already approaching 40 years old and I've, I've really invested a lot of time in this career. In aviation, we have this thing called MDA, minimum descent altitude or decision height. Decision point is what it is. And I made, I decided I've invested too much in this field. I need something that's more reliable. I need to invest in myself. I had actually on the side been giving counsel, just, you know, pro bono and, and getting more and more into planning activities and decided that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start my own wealth management firm. So I'm possibly the only wealth management company that started with zero clients. Usually it's a broker who has transitioned from the dark side over to the registered investment advisor, the, the, the fiduciary side of the industry. And that's not to cast aspersions, not every broker dealer is a bad guy. But I, I started the firm. I had no idea what I was doing. I'm turning the dials. I'm sure you remember that from your business. And then one day, you're not even sure which dial you turned, but it's working. And, and we just started growing like a weed and we grew and grew and grew. We hit a speed bump in 2008 when they decided to shut down all the pilot pensions. And so we pivoted and focused on what we're really are succeeding today. And that is successful business leaders with a growth mindset. And those fall into two groups, primarily business owners, though we also work very well with some of the C-suite executives in, in the big cities. My passion being a business owner and being a true entrepreneur is to work with entrepreneurs. I understand actually one of my most recent books was Tips and Traps, selling, Maximizing Your Wealth While Selling Your Business. And if I was smart, I would have had a copy of it to wave in front of the camera. But I can certainly put a link to that later if that's okay, Chad. Yeah, definitely. Anyone so, ask for it, I'll give them a, a copy. And then, and so what I found after playing with the dials is my model of creating a business that was more predicated on a law firm or a CPA firm, a professional consultative-based approach really resonated well with the clients we were working with. They didn't need a stockbroker. They needed a true advisor who could help them get from where they are to where they want to be. And ever since then, we've been a, it's been a great success. We've been Houston Business Journal top weather manager many years in a row. Schwab has basically told us we're one of the best 5% best managed firms that they work with. And we continue, continue to enjoy great growth. So what would be some of the key points or tips from your book? From Tips and Trap? I, well, that's a good question. The book really is not a how-to book. There's a hundred out there. And the first thing I learned, I interviewed about 40 people in addition to reading about six, seven, half the books I read with, this is how you do it. And of course, the insight that I got is, no, 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 no. Do not do this on your own. You need an expert team. You need a team of professionals who you have pre-screened, pre-qualified before you enter this transaction. Anyone who tries to do this, some know, it's like, a, it's like doing surgery on yourself. Unless you do this every day, and even if you do, maybe you shouldn't do it on yourself. The biggest takeaway I got from the research was that most people overvalue their business because of the emotional component, whereas a buyer really only cares about the net present value of a future stream of cash flows. And you have a sophisticated audience. I think you, they would understand that. So, of course, every business in America has lost value this last year because interest rates have gone up and ergo the discount rate has gone up, too. The, the other thing is 
not only are they too emotionally attached, which is natural, I'm emotionally attached to my team, is they also are not prepared for some of the tax implications of the transaction. Most small businesses are going to be sold as an asset sale. Now, there's, a, there's some quirks in the code that make it look like a stock sale, but let's face it. If you've got a liability tell, your buyer doesn't want that. And if it's an asset sale, it, it's, it's not as tax advantageous for you as it would be if it was a stock sale. Stock sale, it's just capital gains. Asset sale, it can be quite higher taxes. So I've noticed a lot of clients of ours, and this is what inspired me to write the book, is problems my clients had encountered. And then finally, at the end game, we have two problems. One is the earnout period, yeah, especially if it's a private equity buyer. They're going to do everything on their, anything in their power to avoid paying out that earnout. And of course, they run the company. So it's not that difficult. All I got to do is buy a bunch of new equipment and start depreciating it. And your, your net income numbers are falling on paper. So the earnout period can be really risky. And so can clawbacks. I've actually seen clawbacks that also are really egregious. So being ready for those up front and having great negotiators on your team to minimize your exposure to those traps were some of the big Big things that we we discovered. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more to this fantastic book. You're welcome to reach out and be happy to share a copy with any of the listeners. Well, my next question is going to be around your process. And I'm a good sample client. So we're going to use me as, as the guinea pig today. So I have two businesses. One I am selling. It's an e-commerce company. Sub, one, sub million dollars on the sale. And it's already out there being marketed. And I have potential buyers. So that's one thing. So of course I want to maximize the value and I also want to minimize the tax obligation on the, on the sale. I then have my web development and web design company, which is an active cash flow and growing business. So I want to minimize my obligations annually. I want to diversify myself to where not all my eggs are in the basket of this business. And I eventually want to sell it at a premium five, seven years from now. So I come to you and, and how do you help me? Oh, that's a great question. And we address a lot of this in the book. So the number one way to improve the value of a company is through quality processes. Both entrepreneur organization and strategic coach like to talk about a self-managing business. If you've got a self-managing business, by default, you've got good processes. And anyone who's tried it knows that's actually way harder to do than it, than it is to say. But having great process, and I think process is the secret sauce for my company. In fact, I wanted to be able to plug and play different advisors onto a team. We're very team oriented without any change in the client experience. And I also wanted to be able to go, say, to California where we've got clients, maybe for a couple, three weeks at a time, and not even have to call the mothership knowing that the processes and the people have got it completely under control. Because what is someone buying? They're not buying you. They're actually buying your business. And the more independent that business can be from you, the more that business is worth to someone who's buying it. Maximizing that. And the other thing is having clean books. One of the terms I like to use is investing in taxes. And what I mean by that is one of the biggest mistakes small business owners, they run all their personal expenses within reason and maybe even not even that through their business. Well, that muddies the books. And yes, you can sort of reconcile that out, but it still muddies the books and it, it hurts the value of the business much more than the taxes you save 
by running those expenses through the business. So especially if you think you're going to be selling it in the next two to three years, to the extent you can, don't run them through the business. I actually own an airplane. I fly all over the country to visit clients. Most of my clients are often surprised. They'll talk about what a great business expense that must be. And I'm like, I don't, I don't run it through the business. I let the business pay for operating costs on a business trip. I don't depreciate an asset that might be going up in value and I just have to recapture the depreciation. It's a choice. It probably costs me 20 to 30 years over a five-year window, 20 to 30,000 over a five-year window. That's not enough for me to justify running those expenses when the business might be sold in that five-year window. Not to mention the IRS doesn't like boats and airplanes. So did that make sense? Yeah, it does. So like for your plane, for example, are you not running it in your core business, but are, have you created a structure around that? Or is that purely oh, like right. I'm expensive? I actually have a whole webinar. If, if, do, you, do you own an airplane? Not yet. You should. <laughs> but learn how to fly it or you will be spending an extra quarter million operating it. I actually have a webinar that I, I anyone asks, I share a link to. And we did it about 18 months ago. It's on everything you need to know to own an aircraft. You know, asset protection for aircraft owners is a really challenging area. First, the life insurance policy, I can almost guarantee you, has an exemption for a privately flown airplane. So the first thing you got to think about for your family's point of view is, oh, no, now I'm going to need a different life insurance policy. But much greater is what happens if that airplane, maybe a maintenance guy has done work on it, takes it up, land, and engine fails. I actually had an engine shut down on me about five days ago. A lesser pilot may have spun that plane in. Now this is lawsuit city. So a plane should always be in an entity. LLC is usually the, the, the easiest way to go. There, there are caveats to this. Personal liability insurance is important if you're flying the plane. Another thing that a lot of people who put planes in an entity miss is if you do this exactly right, you now look like what's called a Part 135 operation to the FAA. And a lot of private pilots, this doesn't even occur to them that they've done such a good job protecting the asset that they've turned it into a commercial operation. And when the FAA finds out, they come unglued. The, the, the fines and penalties for running commercial operation are significant, but there's ways around that. There are certain ways you can create dry leases and other documents that pretty much tell the feds, no, this is not a commercial operation. It's just asset protection. Yeah, that's a whole nother episode. We can get into the... Yeah, it, it is. And what we do is we've used a consultative approach in my firm, Chad, to help clients not only protect their wealth, but mitigate taxes, take care of their heirs, protect their assets from being unjustly taken, and maximize the impact of charitable planning if that's important to them. What you've just got is a, a sort of small bite-sized chunk of is that asset protection part of that holistic virtual family office that we try to build for our high net worth clients. So do you take the capital in under management or are you more strategic advisement? Well, that's a good question. We bring assets under management. If there aren't enough assets under management, then we usually charge a minimum fee because there is so much strategic work going on. If, if they hit certain thresholds and it depends on the complexity of the client, then, then we waive the minimum fee and the assets under management picks up the heavy lifting. And what kind of experts on your team can a person expect? Let's say you're doing the full process, right? Assets under management. So I come in, what, what types of different thought process do I, do I get to experience from the different types of experts? Oh, that's a great question. 
Thank so we start out with the discovery interview. And the discovery interview is just finding where you are, where you want to be, and whether or not we even belong together and can fit the fill the gap for you. If that goes well, then we'll proceed on to what we call the investment plan meeting. And essentially, wealth management is a vehicle, the engines, the investment consulting piece. But especially the guys, everyone's to look under the hood at the dealership before they get into the car, right? So let's get that conversation out of the way. If we're not aligned on investment philosophy, then we need to know that early. But nine times out of 10, we're aligned. And one thing that's very important to me is this isn't a sales process. This is a consultative process. So even if the client wants to sign, we would say, no, we won't let you. We're going to get together in a week and then we'll have our mutual commitment and proceed from then on. And when we've committed, usually a couple of things happen. One, the custodian will go out, cut a tree down, slice the little pieces and mail it to the client. And we'll bring together that expert team, which typically is an estate attorney, an insurance specialist, a CPA, myself, but we may bring in other specialists as is appropriate for the client's case. And we'll put together a plan and we'll review everything that we've taken from the client. And usually what happens is we've missed something. So at about 45 days after becoming a new client, we'll have our 45-day follow-up. And during that meeting, we'll get to find out what are the hanging chads? What questions have bubbled up for the client? What questions did we discover as we were doing this advanced planning cycle and reconcile those two areas? It seems very unstructured, but everyone always leaves the room going, that was a great meeting. And then you see within 30, 60 days, we'll be ready to present the final wealth confidence plan with the advanced planning recommendations. And the job is through the ongoing relationship is to implement those recommendations in bite-sized chunks. I actually had a discovery meeting just this morning. I have five pages of, six pages of notes from that meeting. We're gonna have all sorts of recommendations. What we need to do is triage it so the, the client's not overwhelmed. The client's running a business, is actually selling a business. And that's what we're gonna to try to do is we're gonna be there for that person so they can focus on your unique ability, comfortable in the knowledge, they got the right team and the right advice, backing them up. Have you identified a particular, let's say, asset profile of who is the ideal client? And the example of that would be, let's say I have a cash flowing business. My main goal is I really want to get into moving some of that cash flow into real estate investing. Am I the ideal client for you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. We have a lot of assets available. We even have a platform called Case, which allows us to really nicely vet private equity, private offerings. Real estate, when we put, when the client puts investment assets into real estate, we're not including that under assets under management. So that client would have to be under the minimum fee if they didn't do any other investing. We have a, a minimum of $2 million. Our target is five to 25. We have some between 25 and 50. That five to 25 target with a minimum of two protects us because of the enormous amount of workload that we provide. For just 250 households, we have 17, 18 people. So that's a very high ratio of support for those clients and they just have to have a certain value. But some so many of the businesses, they haven't cashed out. And so for those businesses, rather than have that asset base, we'll have a minimum fee that is appropriate for the workload and would typically not exceed the asset minimum of $2 million. That makes sense. So Paul, if one of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or Avian, how could they do so? 
Well, they can Google us, Avion Wealth, A-V-I-O-N. It's French for aircraft. It's a little bit of a passion for aviation, you might have noticed. But I love the name, avionwealth.com. They can call us at 281-528-1200. Or they can email me directly, paul at avionwealth.com. On the website, if they go to the resources tab and they want any of the books that we've put out, they're welcome to put in a request. And in return for the right to at least just call and introduce ourselves, be happy to send a, a free copy of Tips and Traps or any of the four other books that I've written. Well, thank you, Paul, for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Failing to Success. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki with Cosmic Web Design and Development. Make sure to subscribe, and we'll see you next time. Thank mm-hmm. you.